You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For Yahweh your God is testing you to know whether you love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after Yahweh your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which Yahweh your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. If your brother, the son of your mother, or your son, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend who is as your own soul entices you secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, some of the gods of the peoples who are around you, whether near you or far off from you, from the one end of the earth to the other, you shall not yield to him or listen to him, nor shall your eye pity him, nor shall you spare him, nor shall you conceal him, but you shall kill him. Your hand shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. You shall stone him to death with stones, because he sought to draw you away from Yahweh your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And all Israel shall hear and fear and never again do any such wickedness as this among you. If you hear in one of your cities, which Yahweh your God is giving you to dwell there, that certain worthless fellows have gone out among you and have drawn away the inhabitants of their city, saying, Let us go and serve other gods, which you have not known. Then you shall inquire and make search and ask diligently, and behold, if it be true and certain that such an abomination has been done among you, you shall surely put the inhabitants of that city to the sword, devoting it to destruction. All who are in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. You shall gather all its spoil into the midst of its open square and burn the city and all its spoil with fire as a whole burnt offering to Yahweh your God. It shall be a heap forever. It shall not be built again. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand that Yahweh may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you as he swore to your fathers. If you obey the voice of Yahweh your God, keeping all his commandments that I am commanding you today and doing what is right in the sight of Yahweh your God. 
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 660 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, July 13th, 2023. And that was a reading of Deuteronomy chapter 13 with some talk about dreams and dreamers and temptations to go and worship other gods whom Israel has not known, but the nations around Israel have known and worshipped. God takes that very seriously, and he's not messing around. He's not playing. He is not playing. He says, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and that's what he means. And maybe you can say, oh man, what are we supposed to do with this idea of putting somebody to death because they're proselytizing for false gods. What are we supposed to do with that? I mean, the implications, man, alive. I mean, surely that's not for today. Surely that shouldn't ever have any representation in the laws of a country, in the laws of a people today. That was only for Israel. That was only for then. Don't you dare say that maybe, just maybe, that has a practical application now. Well, here's what I'll say, right? Here's what I'll say is I want to think about what, if any, implications there would be in the particulars, but we can glean from this passage at least that religious liberty is not an absolute, according to God. If our rights ultimately come from God If that's what we believe as conservatives, then we have to admit at a certain point, religious liberty is not an absolute right. And this actually makes a lot of sense when you consider other rights that we would say a man has or a woman has from God. You have the right to free speech. That doesn't mean that anything you might say is free of consequences or that someone can't tell you, hey, don't say that thing. For instance, if you're saying something that's not true and it's provable, easily provable that it's not true, you're covering over somebody's crimes or their misdeeds or their fraud with lies. Hey, you know what? There are consequences for lying. Your freedom of speech does not mean you are free to lie to cover over somebody else's indiscretions or evil actions. But so also you're not allowed to lie and claim that somebody has done something bad, something evil, something corrupt that they haven't done so as to get them punished when they're falsely accused. You might have freedom of speech, but that freedom is not so absolute that you're allowed to lie and slander people without consequence. So also with regards to religion, with regards to faith, with regards to worship and the service of God's If you are worshiping other gods or when you're soliciting the worship of other gods, is it so hard for us to understand that explicitly calling for the worship of other gods is beyond the scope when we know that there are limitations on other rights? Is it so hard for us to understand that just like you don't have the right to lie and run interference for somebody who's done something evil and you don't have the right to lie and falsely accuse somebody. False worship, as in worship of other gods, is in its way a lie against Yahweh God. 
in its way, it's a slander against the character of God. And in its way, it's a covering over of evils done by these false gods, if they are any gods at all, if they even are entities or beings, created beings, they don't deserve worship. And so to say we should go worship them is actually very similar to saying somebody who's done an evil thing, humanly speaking, should be let off because we've just denied that that was evil in the first place or that they did it. Something to think about, right? I want to think it through more than what I'm saying right now as far as the implications, but I will say at least religious liberty can't be an absolute, but it does have to again and again come back to the question of truth. What is true? What is good? And then by extension, you know what is false because it doesn't conform to the truth. You know what is evil because it is a diminution. It's a privation of the good. If God tells us to not do certain things, those are evil things. Well, then we know that those things are evil because God told us that they're evil. I want to give it some more thought, but let's talk about dreams as well for now. And that actually ties in with the rest of what I want to talk about in this podcast episode with regards to disinformation, with regards to censorship online. Here we have in Deuteronomy 13, the hypothetical of somebody who is a prophet and they're foretelling things. And actually what's presented is that these dreams or these prophecies actually come true. And you have signs and wonders and the signs and wonders are authentic, but <laughs> but they are a means to the end of encouraging worship of a false god. What do you do in that kind of a case? What you don't do is you don't say, because this person is proselytizing for a false god, therefore, what they just did, well, that didn't really happen. What they just said would happen even when it does happen, oh, it must not have happened. That would be fallacious thinking. That would be unreasonable. That would be unwise. Even within the biblical narrative, we see when Moses and Aaron appear to Pharaoh on the mission from God, like the Blues Brothers, when they appear to Pharaoh and they tell him, let my people go, Pharaoh's court magicians do signs and wonders. They are able to perform magic tricks by the power of the gods of Egypt. But then their worshiping false gods does not mean that they didn't actually perform signs and wonders. No, they did. They did. That's what the text tells us. All scriptures breathed out by God and profitable that the man of God might be complete, equipped for every good work. So they did perform signs and wonders, but those signs and wonders don't prove what they are doing is correct where they worship those false gods. And actually, that's half the reason why I think God allows those false gods to give these magicians an ability to perform signs and wonders is so that then God can do an even better, even more dominant sign and wonder to prove that he is God above all gods, he is Lord above all lords, he is king above all kings, he is dominant, he is sovereign, and you won't fully appreciate that, I would argue, and it would seem he also is of this view, 
you wouldn't fully appreciate it in those circumstances unless God had allowed these false gods and these false prophets and these court magicians to do their signs and wonders first. You go first. You go ahead, right? Now, at other times, does God stop the false prophets in the biblical narrative? Does he stop them? Does he prevent them from being able to do what they want to do? Yes, we see that with the prophets of Baal later on. That's yet to come, but we see it later on in the biblical narrative in the Old Testament. The prophets of Baal are trying to get Baal to come through for them publicly as they are in this showdown with the prophet of Yahweh. And it would seem, to my way of reading, to my way of thinking, it would seem that either Baal is no God at all or his hands are tied. (laughs) Yahweh has said, no, you can't. I won't let you. And that's that. Either way, what is established is Yahweh is God. Yahweh is God above all gods. And anybody who tells you otherwise is lying. Anybody who tries to get you to worship some other God besides Yahweh God is a liar. And don't listen to them. Now, maybe they actually had some power from their false God. Maybe they actually had an ability of foresight. But what does Deuteronomy 13 say? They are testing you. God is testing you. Yahweh, your God, is testing you in verse 3 to know whether you love Yahweh, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul. Yahweh, God, is testing you. That is a very curious thought. That is a very curious explanation that maybe we should be applying more today. Maybe that should be more our focus then what do we do with people who are proselytizing for false gods? First and foremost, because I think very often when we start there, when we start with that question, all of the considerations that creep in have to do with what would be socially acceptable for us to say or to reason or to conclude. And we get very fearful of being rejected or thought ill of. And so let's just not deal with that question for the purposes of this discussion just yet, let's deal with the upstream question of, is God testing you in these moments where you have an overwhelming, perhaps, proof of a false worshiper, a false prophet, a false teacher being able to do signs and wonders, which otherwise would authenticate the message. And we see that elsewhere, actually. In the New Testament, we see signs and wonders to establish that Jesus has authority and then, by extension, that his disciples have authority to be teaching and proclaiming what they're teaching and proclaiming. But it doesn't work the other way, or at least it shouldn't, and that's part of the test. When the false prophet, the false worshiper, is also doing signs and wonders, even miracles, you don't therefore say, ah, well, that authenticates their message. Not if you're wise, Not if you love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul, at least. So these are things to think about as we live in a day and age where increasingly there's a hostility towards Christianity in the West, here in the United States, where I was born and raised and live and raise my family. There is 
more and more a hostility towards Christianity in the public square, and it's more blatant. And there are very impressive abilities that the godless have by virtue of technology, we might say. But then also, I would say, possibly by the power of those false gods who the nation's God drove out before Israel worshipped. Possibly those false gods are still worshipped. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that some at least dabble, at least play so as to mock or make uncomfortable the Christians as part of their hostility towards Christians because ultimately they're hostile towards Christ. They're enemies of God. They don't love God. They hate God, and so they hate God's people. And so they want to tweak the nose of all of the above by worshiping the pagan deities of old. But it's good for us to know that sometimes if the enemies of Christ in our day are able to do signs and wonders or even predict things, and we're amazed by that, on the one hand, that doesn't authenticate their lies. If they're lying, they're lying. If they're able to do some very impressive things while lying, we can say, yeah, that's very impressive. And what you said is still not true. <laughs> like, We need to be ready to do that and we need to be able to do that. We have to practice and cultivate the ability to do that and to be reasonable and to let our reasonableness be evident to all. We have to practice that. But then also, too, we should wonder, is the Lord perhaps testing us to see whether we really love him with all our heart, with all our soul today? Is he growing us through these things if we rise to the challenge and we continue to trust and love him and we commit to that? By his grace, I believe there's a reward and I believe there's a blessing in that, even if there's great suffering, even if there is persecution, which at the current rate is just a few years out at most, unless something dramatic changes. Speaking of, why don't I tell you a little story, a little anecdote, a personal one about how I am on my way to batting a thousand on social media, social media censorship. As you know, if you've been listening to this podcast for some time, I am locked out of my Twitter account. It was supposed to be a 12-hour suspension because I tweeted back to at Chris Jolly Hale, with all due respect, what a retarded thing to say because he was calling for the removal and replacement of Senator from Tennessee, Republican Marsha Blackburn, over asking Biden's judicial nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court, what is a woman? I am still going on a year and a half later, locked out of my Twitter account. I cannot get in. Anytime I click a link by accident that is going to take me to Twitter, my offending post is brought back up. And it says I can make an appeal. I've made several appeals. I've got screenshots of what they said I violated initially as far as their community guidelines or community standards or whatever. And it was totally fallacious. It was totally fictitious. It was not true. It was a lie. It was a slander and libel after a fashion that they said I violated what I did because their claim was initially when they flagged my post and suspended me, the claim initially was that I was either buying, selling, or facilitating 
transactions for illegal goods and services on the platform, which makes zero sense, absolutely zero sense in relation to what I tweeted. Now, if I did it somewhere else, please show me. I don't think I did, but that's because I didn't. I didn't do the thing they say I did, but then of course they don't care. And my appeals were either turned down or they're just hanging out, right? Just hanging out in limbo and they're not reviewing them. And I'm just in perpetuity exiled from the public square that is Twitter. But now Facebook, right? Now Facebook adds an additional notch in my belt after a fashion, so to speak. And here's the story. So Michael Knowles posted to Facebook the following quote from the ancient Greek historian Polybius. Quote, it is not enough to constitute a democracy that the whole crowd of citizens should have the right to do whatever they wish or propose, but where reverence to the gods, succor of parents, respect for elders, obedience to laws are traditional and habitual in such communities, if the will of the majority prevail, we may speak of the form of government as a democracy, end quote. So I commented on this, actually in reply to a comment on this quote that Michael Knowles shared to Facebook, wherein someone, I don't know, some member of the public said that people who have imaginary friends are weird. And of course, given the context, what you know he means is people who believe in gods or God are weird, which is to say he is flying his atheist flag, loud and proud, and mocking Christians in particular in our context here in the U.S., here in the West, just like the new atheists of 15 years ago or so. But I replied with a very short, a very succinct comment to this atheist who was trying to poke fun at theists. All I said were three little words, atheists are weird. Because everybody knows, everybody gets what this guy is trying to say, what he's trying to do. He's trying to mock theists, but he's doing it in a roundabout way that's not so clever and it's not so subtle, but it's more subtle than I was going to be. And so I just said flat out, atheists are weird. If you want to say that theists are weird because we believe in so-called imaginary friends, I'm going to say atheists are weird. Let's just cut to the chase. <laughs> Let's just get right down to it, what we're actually talking about. And we'll move on. You think I'm weird. I think you're weird. Cool. Cool story, bro. Very shortly after I posted this comment, I got a notification from Facebook giving me an account warning because my comment, and this is a quote, my comment didn't follow our community standards on hate speech, which is to say my comment is no longer visible. Nobody else can see it except I took a screenshot and I posted said screenshot to my Facebook page. And if they want to flag that too, they can. But they say in their extended write-up, we have these standards because we want everyone to feel safe, respected, and welcome. If your content goes against our community standards, again, your account may be restricted or disabled. You can disagree with the decision if you think we got it wrong. And so what did I do? I said, yeah, I disagree with your decision. I think this is wrong. I think you're wrong. I think 
that my comment should not go against your community standards. And there were three or four options that I could have picked. There were multiple choice. One of the others was I see other content just like mine on Facebook. And I could have picked that one because the guy I was replying to wasn't being particularly charitable. He was being hateful towards theists. If you want to call this hate, he's rejecting theism and theists and mocking theists. I would say he did it in an even more caustic way than I did because he implied that we're mentally ill or childish. I just left it at the succinct atheists are weird. But I got the notification, 6.51 p.m. Your comment doesn't follow our community standards on hate speech. No one else can see your comment now, they said. And so I disagreed with the decision. I appealed the decision at 7.03 p.m. By 7.31 p.m. last night, I got a follow-up. We confirmed your comment didn't follow the community standards. We reviewed your comment again, and it doesn't follow our community standards. Okay. So don't call anybody weird, I guess, if they apply their community standards equally, evenly across the board, which of course they don't, right? Of course they don't. They doubled down on taking my comment down, and this is one of those three strikes sorts of things. Any deranking, any delisting, any shadow banning of my content can be justified if they say, ah, well, it's because he said this thing that's objectionable, which is actually going back to my subscriber-only episode about board games. If social media were more like board games, you would say, hey, this game is rigged. This is a rigged game to make sure that certain players always win. And those are the rules. That's the community standard is the left always wins. The globalist agenda always wins. The Democrats always win. That's the community standard here, apparently. But what's curious is if we zoom out, it's not about me. It really isn't. It's not about me, but there are larger trends that my content, my voice, my input is caught up in. I am not so foolish or arrogant as to suppose that those trends revolve around me. I'm just having to deal with them. Let's go over to the Daily Wire for a moment, and let's consider a bit of reporting from Virginia Cruda. Published just yesterday, Glenn Greenwald torches Ray for failure to define disinformation. So I'll play for you cut one here, tweeted out by the Heritage Foundation. Thank you to Virginia Kruta and the folks over at the Daily Wire for embedding this tweet so that I know what's going on. Thank you to the Heritage Foundation for tweeting this out so that it could be embedded in the reporting by Virginia Kruta. But here it is, cut one. Take a listen to this back and forth with FBI Director Christopher Wray. The evidence shows you, your agency, the people that directly report to you, suppressed conservative-leaning free speech about topics like the laptop, the lab leak theory of COVID-19's origin, the effectiveness of masks and COVID-19 lockdowns and vaccines, speech about election integrity in the 2020 presidential election, security of voting by mail, even parody about the president himself, negative posts about the economy. The FBI made the social media platforms pull that information off the internet if it came from conservative sources. 
they, they did this under the guise that it was disinformation. Can you, can you define what disinformation is? What I can tell you is that our focus is not on disinformation, broadly speaking. Well, wait a minute. Yes, it is. Wait a minute. Can I answer the question? You can in a minute. Your star witness said in the litigation, Elvis Chan, who's in charge of this, said they do it on the basis of disinformation. We need a a definition of what that is. Our focus is on malign foreign disinformation, that is, foreign hostile actors who engage in covert efforts to (laughs) abuse our social media platforms, which is something that is not seriously in dispute. I have to stop you for time. That's not accurate. You need to read this court opinion because you're in charge of enforcing it. The court has found that, and Elvis Chan testified under oath in charge of this for you. He said 50%. He had a 50% success rate in having alleged election disinformation taken down or censored. That, That wasn't just foreign adversaries, sir. That was American citizens. How do you answer for that? Well, first off, I'm not sure that's a correct characterization. It comes of right out of the opinion. You should read what it. I, of, of his testimony. But what I would say is the FBI is not in the business of moderating content or causing any social media company to suppress or censor. That is not what the court has found. Okay. Great. Great stuff. Great stuff from Mike Johnson, congressman from Louisiana. Really good questioning. Really great comments back and forth with FBI Director Christopher Ray, And an important question. How are you going to enforce or encourage social media to enforce a restriction on so-called disinformation if you're not even willing to define what it is? It's like community standards. It's like community standards. It's supposed to be this ambiguous, amorphous junk drawer that you can just put whatever you want into and then ignore or dispose of as you please. That's why it's a vague term. That's why he doesn't want to define it because to define it then would lead to a parade of examples of protected speech online being taken down, suppressed. And also, oh, by the way, have we no recollection, Christopher Ray, of the Twitter files showing multiple government agencies and the staff for Several Democrats, including the president of the United States, campaigns also for Democrats contacting Twitter behind the scenes, intelligence agencies in the U.S. contacting Twitter saying, we want this account taken down, we want this content taken down, we want this suppressed, we want this to not trend, we want this to be flagged, but we can't even define what disinformation is. Christopher Ray, you, you you can't even define what it is. Hmm. Hmm. Glenn Greenwald, independent journalist, as I understand, he's got some commentary also embedded in a tweet that I can see, thanks to Virginia Cruda having put it in her piece. To quote Glenn Greenwald, the reason FBI Director Chris Ray can't define disinformation, even though that's the basis for the FBI's pressure campaign on big tech to censor Americans is it's a, pardon his language here, bullshit, concocted term with no fixed meaning. That's what gives it its power. Just like the term terrorism, he points out. Terrorism, you can broadly define, you can make it this amorphous junk drawer, and if it can mean anything you want it to mean, then maybe, just maybe, sometimes you put parents, moms and dads on terrorist watch lists because they showed up angry to a school board meeting 
when their kids were being required to shower and change and use restrooms with members of the opposite gender in those schools. Maybe you put parents on terrorist watch lists because they're angry at their local public school for pushing gender theory and critical race theory on their kids. If terrorism means whatever you want it to mean, then yeah, I suppose you could say you're very afraid when these parents get upset and they get angry and who knows what they might do when they're angry. But terrorism can't just mean when your political opponents get angry or get upset or are critical or are promising accountability right after we detail abuses or corruption. Terrorism can't just be this junk drawer any more than disinformation can be a junk drawer for any speech that you hate, anybody's political position that you want to suppress. But Glenn Greenwald continues in his tweeting yesterday. He says, there's a whole array of terms that have no real fixed meaning except for however those in power decide subjectively to apply them on an ad hoc basis. Disinformation, hate speech, terrorism, their ambiguity is intentional. It's what allows them to be abused. However one defines disinformation, it's beyond reasonable dispute that the FBI always has been and continues to be one of the most prolific disseminators of it. The same is true of corporate media and the establishment frauds they've christened as disinformation experts. And here he's got a link to a politico.com piece or tweet, a screenshot, I suppose you could say, wherein Jen Psaki posted a Politico story. Hunter Biden's story is Russian disinfo, dozens of former Intel officials say. Again, the same applies to so-called community standards, community guidelines, if they can mean whatever you want them to mean, then basically they become a blank check for you to purge all dissent, all criticism, all accountability, all cross-examination. What is it the Proverbs tells us? The first to state his case seems correct, seems correct, seems correct, which is to say is not necessarily correct, but seems correct until the other comes to examine him. If the big idea behind enforcing so-called community guidelines is to quiet or silence the second who comes to examine the first to state his case, any time the first to state his case is on the left or is a globalist or is a progressive or is an atheist, then what they're doing is they're engineering choice. This is persuasive technology designed to engineer what decisions you make by funneling you, all the while giving you the impression that you're actually making decisions on your own. No, no. Psychologists and computer programmers helped you to make those decisions, the only decisions you could possibly make. It's like the old Henry Ford quip. Customers can have the Model T in any color they want, so long as it's black. That's what this is. But for some more reporting over at the Daily Wire, I would turn your attention to a write-up by Tim Meads from yesterday. And here I will play for you cut two, followed shortly thereafter by cut three. Here we have Thomas Massey asking some questions, and then we have Jim Jordan and Matt Gates as well. But I'll play for you cut two and three back to back, and then I'll have some additional thoughts.
interview with Assistant Director Stephen Duantuano, Chairman Jordan and I sent you a letter a month ago. Some of the information that we found in that interview was that phone data that could have helped to identify the pipe bomber was corrupted, was unusable. Uh, he also wasn't sure who found or how the second bomb was found at the DNC. Do you know how the second bomb was found at the DNC? And, and when do you plan on answering our letter? Well, as to the letter, I, I will uh, work with the department to make sure we can figure out what information we can provide. As you know, this is a very active, ongoing investigation, and there are some restrictions on that. But we, yes, will we can handle classified on. information, it's, and we fund your department, and so you need to provide that. that. It's not, respectfully, it's not an issue of classification. It's an issue of commenting on ongoing criminal investigations, which is something that by longstanding department policy we are restricted in doing. And in fact, the last administration actually strengthened those policies partly That's because... That's not our policy, though, and we fund you, so let's move on. I could do you know how the second pipe bomb... Do you, can you tell us how the second pipe bomb was found at the DNC? I, again, I'm not going to get into that here. 900 days ago is when this happened, and you said you had total confidence we'd apprehend the subject. The American people need to understand what just happened. My, col my Democrat colleague just asked the director of the FBI whether or not they are buying information about our fellow Americans, and the answer is, well, we'll just have to get back to you on that. It sounds really complicated, but I have other questions. I'm sitting here with my father. I will make certain that between the man sitting next to me and every person he knows and my ability to forever hold a grudge, that you will regret not following my direction. I am sitting here waiting for the call with my father. Sounds like a shakedown, doesn't it, Director? I'm not going to get into commenting on that. You, you, you seem deeply uncurious about it, don't you? Almost suspiciously uncurious. Are you protecting the Bidens? Absolutely not. The FBI well, does not the has no oh, interest in You won't answer the question about whether or not that's a shakedown, and everybody knows why you won't answer it. Because to, ev to the millions of people who will see this, they know it is. And you know what? Actually, just for anyhow, let's go ahead and play cut four as well. Here's Jim Jordan. Is real and not Russian disinformation is particularly troubling. The FBI had the laptop in their possession since December 2019 and had warned social media companies repeatedly to look out for, quote, hack and dump operation by the Russians prior to the 2020 election. Even after Facebook specifically asked whether the laptop story was Russian disinformation, the FBI refused to comment, resulting in social media companies' suppression of this story. And as a result, millions, millions of our fellow citizens did not hear the story prior to the November 3rd, 2020 election. Additionally, the FBI was included in industry meetings, bilateral meetings, received and forwarded alleged misinformation to social media companies, and actually misled companies in regard to the laptop story. When the court says the FBI misled, that's a nice way of saying they lied. They lied, and as a result, important information was kept from we the people days before the most important election we have, election of President of the United States, election of the Commander-in-Chief. In a survey last fall, four out of five Americans said they believe there's a two-tiered system of justice in America today. They said that because there is. They said that because of what they've witnessed. Think about what Americans have seen. National School Board Association, left-wing political group, writes the White House and asks them to treat parents as, 
at school board meetings as terrorists. And the Garland Justice Department does just that. They put together a memo, set up a dedicated line of threat communication. Pro-life Catholics, they called radical. They want them to pay for a new FBI headquarters. And they want Pfizer reauthorization of the 702 program in its current form. It's in, it's in the director's opening statement. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. There are 204,000 reasons why Republicans will oppose Pfizer reauthorization in its current form. 204,000 times the FBI improperly searched the 702 database. And unlike the FBI censorship in the court's opinion that was focused on conservatives, the FBI's illegal scrutiny wasn't just limited to conservatives. BLM supporters were illegally scrutinized by the FBI as well. And I hope our Democrat friends will join us in opposing reauthorization of Section 702 the way it's currently done. And I think they will. And I hope, and I hope they will work with us in the appropriations process to stop the weaponization of the government against the American people and end this double standard that exists now in our justice system. That I yield to the gentleman from New York for an opening statement. Okay, so briefly, just briefly before we move on to our next item, here you have several Republican congressmen asking hard questions of FBI Director Christopher Wray, hard questions that in too many cases don't have answers at all or the answers are deeply unsatisfying. And Tim Meads over the Daily Wire comments Given an assessment like Jordan's in particular, you would think impeachments are coming down the pike. Instead, Jordan reiterates Republican opposition to FISA reauthorization and funding for new FBI headquarters. What's the plan to get Democrats to join them? Well, he didn't go into too much detail other than to express his hope that the Democratic Party will join them. Hope is not a strategy, Congressman Tim Meads writes. And I would agree with that. I would agree hope is not a strategy. But there is a certain tactical value to saying, I hope my Democrat colleagues will join us in getting this cleaned up and addressed. There's a certain tactical value to that. It might be a limited value. And we do well, as Tim Meads is pointing out, to consider opportunity cost. Is this too little compared with what you could be doing? For instance, couldn't you be impeaching Christopher Ray? I'd like to know the answer to that. Couldn't we be impeaching others as well who are abusing the power of their office and have weaponized the federal government against conservatives, against Republicans, against moms and dads? Couldn't there be impeachment proceedings? Wouldn't that be more appropriate? Or could you do both, right? Could you do the impeachment business and also the other things? I think those are fair questions. But one thing that's not in doubt is you have these umbrella terms like disinformation being rolled out every time a broad mandate is desired for going after political opponents. And again, the or else would be instead of a two-tiered justice system, equal protection of the laws, which is to say that conservatives should be protected by the laws Conservative moms and dads should be protected by the laws. Conservative political candidates and their campaigners and their staffers and their friends should be protected by the laws and not just targets 
anytime you can find something or you can justify in your own mind and in your bureau a fishing expedition to find something, right? Find something that they are guilty of to go after them for, to haul them into court for, to parade them in front of the media for. Protection of the laws should not be a one-way street where Democrats can hide behind we have an ongoing criminal investigation or that's classified or that's top secret or what have you. The protection of the laws shouldn't be working in one direction only and then scrutiny of a legal sort working only in one direction. Legal accountability only working in one direction. That's not justice. That's social justice, but that's not justice, ladies and gentlemen. And quite frankly, as bad as it is, more needs to be done besides just declining to reauthorize FISA, besides just saying to the FBI, you need to locate your HQ in Alabama. We're not going to give the funding for you to build a nice new shiny headquarters in Washington, D.C. You are too politicized being in Washington, D.C. You need to locate farther out, farther away, where it's harder to reach you. More needs to be done than that. That's not bad, right? Those are not bad ideas, but they're not good enough ideas if that's all we're going to do. So hopefully we're going to do more than just that and soon. For our next story, though, for an example of what this looks like in the media and how the media is working hand in glove with the Democrats as well, Joe Biden's administration in particular, Harris Rigby over at Not The Bee has a story up from just yesterday in which a number of tweets are embedded, highlighted. I will play for you the one that is posted by Tom Elliott, tweeted out also July 12th. So yesterday, here it is, cut five on MSNBC, some remarks regarding how Biden's staff is not doing a good enough job protecting him from scrutiny for his age. Hagan, they also managed to schedule very carefully. Yeah, I think his staff needs to own his age. I'm just going to be honest. I don't think they do a good job uh, helping out the president. And I'm not talking about it like I'm just saying if you are managing a president's schedule, and you are managing a president getting on stage and getting off stage and doing getting on planes and getting off plane. And yes, he's 80. You need to be there for him and you need to make a pathway. And you sure as hell better make sure he doesn't fall on a sandbag. And I blame the staff for that. I mean, these are the things that are going to hurt him. These are things that are going to be played on a loop. Okay, let him do his job, let him do his speeches, let him work on policy, let him do his connections in Congress, unlike any president that we've seen, uh, I I don't know, since Clinton. But my God, make sure, you know, your Secret Service, you're his staff, that you were there and you're telling him what's next. And it's not because don't don't take this as, oh, he can't even get from one place to another. When you're busy and you're on stage and we've been on stage, I've done speeches and I'm so nervous. I'm doing the speech. I'm trying to get it right. And when it's done, I don't know which way to go. And I'm looking for direction. So do a better job. Because you can't have these video images of the president tripping or the president like going the wrong way. It's not going to work in this presidency because his age is going to be a factor. 
His age is going to be a factor, and it's your job to make sure he gets from one place to another. He can handle the presidency. You have to handle his schedule and where he goes. Well, and, and, and the schedule. It makes me mad. The scheduling, I mean, the scheduling is so important. You have with every president, you have different strengths, you have different weaknesses. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, that makes sense. Yeah. <clears throat> Thanks, Joe Scarborough. Thank you, Mika. <clears throat> every president has strengths and weaknesses. That's a fair point. Uh, nobody's perfect. Everybody occasionally, you know, maybe fumbles and trips and slips and all that. And, <clears throat> you know, it, it it is a factor, like she points out, it is a factor that Biden is 80. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, Joe Scarborough, he's right to point out that every president is going to have strengths and weaknesses. It just so happens that Joe Biden's weaknesses have to do with walking or ascending and descending stairs or even being able to follow cues because actually a number of the videos that I've seen where he goes astray, he wanders off, he's being pointed, right? He's being told, okay, now go here. All right, now take a left. Okay, now take a right. Okay, now it's time to get up and go. Or no, it's not, not yet. Or <clears throat> yeah, now it's time for you to speak. No, no, it's not. He's getting that, right? <laughs> Mika, Joe, Scarborough, he's getting the directions. But, you know, I have this feeling, I just really do, that disinformation, the way that it's being defined or not defined as the case may be on the left, disinformation would include but not be limited to the fact that Joe Biden is incoherent Oftentimes when he's speaking, Mika says he can handle the presidency. And no, he can't. No, he isn't. Very clearly. When the guy can't even handle the stairs or walking to and fro or taking directions consistently again and again, when he can't even handle a sentence, uh, no. No, he can't handle the presidency. He's just a figurehead. You just want him up there because his name is recognized and also he does what the people who have bought him, want him to do. He does what the left in this country wants him to do, or more to the point, doesn't stop them from doing what they want to do. So he's a permissive grandfather, so to speak. He's permissive for them, and he gets angry and curses at the people they don't like. And so, yeah, they want to protect him and have him go again in 2024 for as long as he'll last, because they don't have anybody else. They don't have anybody else. They definitely don't want RFK Jr. Whatever my disagreements with RFK, I don't think he's somebody who has been bought or can be bought. I think he's somebody who's terribly, badly, badly mistaken on a few things. But I don't think he can be bought, and I think that's why they don't want him. They want somebody they can control. Joe Biden, they can control. That's the feature. It's not a bug. It's a feature. But the flip side is when Mika Brzezinski goes on MSNBC and Joe Scarborough goes on MSNBC and says, hey, this is a problem, Biden staff. This is your fault. That's toxic. That is bad optics. You are not getting out of the hole you've dug yourself into, you are digging it even deeper because that attitude, that mindset is exactly how they relate to the American people as well. 
That's how they relate to our allies abroad as well. That's how they relate to military service members. That's how they relate to independent journalists. That's how they relate to individual American moms and dads is if Joe Biden looks bad, it's your fault. Always, always. If you point out true facts of how we're being harmed here or our friends and family are being harmed here or other people around the world are being harmed here by these policies, that's disinformation because the game is not let's do what's best, let's do what's right, and let's say what's true. The game is we win. Whatever we want, we get. That's their game. And it's bad. It's bad news. It's corrupt. They love bribes and they hate anybody who doesn't take bribes. So they love Joe Biden and they want to keep him around for another four years. But switching gears, let's talk about something related but distinct, and maybe there will be enough historical distance, geographical distance, cultural distance for us to see more clearly what's going on in our own context. That's, I would say, the best reason to read history and to read about the larger world is you get perspective. Sometimes we have a hard time seeing the forest for the trees. And sometimes when you're only talking about current events, it can be too easy to get myopic, to get tunnel vision and to be deceived. We don't want that. We want to think rightly. We want to have clear heads. We want to know what we're about and have good reasons and be reasonable so we can act rightly, so that we can honor God, so we can love one another. That said, I would turn your attention to a Wikipedia article that I stumbled across this past week about political abuse of psychiatry in the Soviet Union. And I'll read for you the first few paragraphs, and then I will refer you to the larger article. It's very lengthy. And if you want to read more, you can. If you want to know more about this, I also have a book I'll recommend before we move on to our next topic. But starting from the top at Wikipedia, and I quote, there was systematic political abuse of psychiatry in the Soviet Union based on the interpretation of political opposition or dissent as a psychiatric problem. It was called psychopathological mechanisms of dissent. During the leadership of General Secretary Leonid Brezhnev, psychiatry was used to disable and remove from society political opponents, also known as dissidents, who openly expressed beliefs that contradicted the official dogma. The term philosophical intoxication, for instance, was widely applied to the mental disorders diagnosed when people disagreed with the country's communist leaders and by referring to the writings of the founding fathers of Marxism-Leninism, Karl Marx, Frederick Engels, and Vladimir Lenin, made them the target of criticism. Article 58-10 of the Stalin-era criminal code, anti-Soviet agitation was to a considerable degree preserved in the new 1958 RSFSR criminal code as Article 70, quote, anti-Soviet agitation and propaganda, end quote. In 1967, a weaker law, Article 190-1, quote, dissemination of fabrications known to be false, which defame the Soviet political and social system, end quote, was added to the RSFSR criminal code. These laws were frequently applied in conjunction with the system of diagnosis for mental illness developed by academician Andrei Snitsnetsky. Together, 
they established a framework within which non-standard beliefs could easily be defined as criminal offenses and the basis subsequently for a psychiatric diagnosis. Now, I'll stop right there with Wikipedia, and I will make reference to a book which I picked up here a year or so ago. I found it online after hearing it referenced in something else that I was reading, and that's wonderful when that happens, by the way. You read books that lead to other books that lead to other books. As long as you have books, you will always have friends, by the way. Ward 7 by Valeri Tarsus, translated by Katya Brown, is a pretty remarkable book I haven't read yet. (laughs) I say it's remarkable because as the jacket summary tells me, this extraordinary and appalling document, autobiography, thinly disguised as fiction, is certainly one of the most important post-revolutionary books and one that never could have been published in the USSR. It is the story of Valentin Almazov, an author practically identical to Valery Tarsus, who, out of favor with the government for criticizing the regime abroad, is incarcerated in a lunatic asylum. It is also an impassioned denunciation of communism and a suicidal cry of anguish from a brave writer who would rather be heard than be cautious. Actually, there is only one lunatic in Ward 7 of this Moscow asylum, quote, the only really happy man in our godforsaken country, end quote. The rest are all, quote, the victims of their lot as Soviet citizens, end quote. Tarsus tells something of the hospital itself built to hold 1,000 patients. It now holds 6,000. Though Ward 7 has one point in its favor, one could say anything he wanted, which could not be done anywhere else on Soviet soil. Its larger purpose was terrifying. Quote, its deliberate project was to damage, not to cure, end quote. Patients are stuffed with happiness pills whose long-range effects are, quote, damage to memory, to eyesight, reduced sexual potency, apathy and indifference, end quote. Apathy and indifference, the author states, are well-suited to the Soviet life as, quote, the whole object of our society is to train robots, end quote. The author also relates the stories of some of his fellow inmates, as well as how he himself arrived at Ward 7, All were sent away indefinitely without trial or hearing. With considerable spirit and humor, Tarsus tells of his arrest for passing manuscripts out of the country. Even his janitor proved to be a kind of policeman. He adds, however, that a, quote, mental hospital is the only place for an honest writer in Russia nowadays, end quote. Ward 7 is a noble book, fiery, passionate, courageous, sad, and at times quite funny. It is also a book whose importance cannot be overstated. It is in a very real sense the contemporary and intellectual equivalent of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich. It bristles with the author's ideas and with his outspoken arguments for disposing of communism, for exposing it, for the rotten thing it is. Moreover, its author is an extremely good writer whose training has been in the tradition of Western literature. Valery Tarsus is an author who burns every bridge he has with every step he takes. The result is an unforgettable book of terrific impact. Now, I bring this to your attention in hopes that some of you out there might pick it up, might check it out, might read it. If you're in the area, here in Greeley-Evans area, let me know if you'd like to borrow my copy. I'll be happy to loan it to you as long as I get it back. But even just the Wikipedia article, not being abstract generalities, statistics, platitudes, there were real men with real families with real lives who were destroyed 
under the Soviet system and abusing psychiatry, using psychiatry to abuse critics, dissenters, accountability partners, if you will, commentators, free men. It's happening here. It's happening in our country. It's happening with big tech and their so-called community guidelines, their so-called community standards. It's happening with regards to so-called hate speech. It's happening with regards to disinformation. It's happening with regards to every phobia that the left makes up to shut up and to silence their critics. The way that the left talks about conservatives, anybody who would cross-examine them, the way that the left characterizes us is just like this, to say that we are mentally ill. If they can't make it stick that we are corrupt and we're only interested in money, you know, dirty capitalist pigs we are, if they can't make it stick that we're oppressing anybody, like we belong to a certain oppressive class or several oppressive classes, so-called, through the Marxist lens, then the next thing that they do is what the Marxists did in Russia. And that is they try to marginalize us, harm us individually, personally, but also harm us socially in terms of our reputation by suggesting that maybe we should be on some sort of medication. Because clearly, clearly the only reason you would disagree with leftist dogma is because you're mentally ill. You're clearly a crazy person and we should treat you as a crazy person. Meanwhile, look at what the political left, look at what the left in the corporate media and in the social media spaces is wanting you to affirm. They're wanting you to affirm actual mental illness and to excuse it and to say it's all society's fault. Why? Because the next thing you do once you say it's all of society's fault is you create this broad mandate or at least you confuse people long enough to push it through and get it cemented to overhaul all of society and to redistribute all of the capital, all of the wealth, all of the political power and representation, all of the authority, all of the credibility, all of the honor. In essence, the project is to make people who are sane and courageous either suspect that maybe they're crazy or submit to everyone around them thinking that they're crazy so that there essentially is no meaningful category of sanity because even that needs to be redistributed. It could be, it could just be that the people who are called insane or mentally ill or crazy by the radical left, by the Marxists, by the communists, they're actually the sanest people around because they've put it together that you have to have courage in order to stand up to what is happening and what is planned. You have to have courage or else a more dreadful, a more fearful fate awaits. That your conscience would be seared, that you would know you helped this thing to happen. Live not by lies, the great essay by Solzhenitsyn, Live Not By Lies correctly identifies that we all are endorsing and affirming the political violence of the left, 
of the communists if it's always they, but we don't contradict, we don't tell the truth. They say something that's a lie and we know it to be a lie, but we don't challenge it. We don't disagree with it. We don't contradict it. We don't say, well, that's not actually true. We don't testify to the truth and therefore we help to cement the lie. We help to enforce and reinforce the violence that is done to innocent men, women, and children on the basis of those lies. But I bring this up with regards to these fuzzy categories like disinformation, like hate speech, because we can absolutely beat the Soviets at their own game if we embrace communism on a global scale, if we push for other countries around the world to submit to a radical wealth redistribution scheme. We can beat the Soviets. All of the horrible things that the Soviet Union did to its own people, we can do that much and worse. And if we do it with a smile, like liberal fascism by Jonah Goldberg, if we do it with a smile or it's done with some happiness pills that in the long run destroy the health and vitality and the humanity of those who take them, and that is exported and that is globalized, we will be worse villains for having been silent as it was building in our own country, in the United States of America. We will be worse villains than those Solzhenitsyn denounced in the Soviet Union before he was arrested and exiled to the West. For our next story, though, I would draw your attention to an article by Jason Whitlock over at TheBlaze.com, published just yesterday. Pearl Davis and the Manosphere cash in on the failures of the church. Jason Whitlock writes, The Manosphere, a loose confederation of male, anti-feminist internet content creators, loves Pearl Davis. She is our queen, our ally in the fight to save the patriarchy. She's a soldier in the coldest, longest-running war in the history of the planet, a war that is heading to a climax. As you read this, it's the gender war, the battle of the sexes, the matriarchy versus the patriarchy. A spat sparked by a disagreement over an apple in the garden has brought the world to the brink of collapse. We should not be surprised. The issues and conflicts we ignore or wish away are the very maladies that destroy us. We hyperfocus on racial, political, and geographical conflict, falsely believing that solving those disputes will bring us peace and order. We draw lines in sand with conservatives and liberals between blacks and whites and among bordering nations. We're willing to die over race, politics, and land encroachments. The planet-long dispute between men and women forces us to compromise. Those compromises have led us to where we are today. Men have been seduced into surrendering power and authority to women. The emotion and feelings of women rule Western civilization. This has created the manosphere, an isolated, passionate corner of the internet where men grumble over their loss of dominion, over the fish of the sea, the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that creepeth upon the earth. The matriarchy and its culture have rewritten the book of Genesis. Their rewrite warns against being fruitful, multiplying, and replenishing the earth. Man no longer subdues the earth. Woman subdues man. In this climate, Pearl Davis is a tall glass of water in a feminist-controlled desert. She's joined the manosphere in discussing the most important issue facing mankind— the natural order of authority. The church has shied away from the topic or acquiesced to the feminist point of view. This topic goes much deeper than prominent evangelists such as Rick Warren ushering in an egalitarian 
view on pastoral leadership. What are the consequences of women voting and joining the workforce? Have welfare and other government subsidies undermined male rulership and made America chaotic and vulnerable? Has the country gone too far promoting the development of girls and neglected the development of boys? All of these issues and many more need to dominate the pulpit. They're mostly ignored and left to the manosphere. Bold, polarizing, and humorous, Pearl Davis won the adoration of the manosphere with a string of viral videos that proclaim the superiority of men and mock the delusion and whoredom of modern women. What's not to love? Pearl tells men of the manosphere exactly what we want to hear. Quote, women should submit to their husbands. America should repeal the 19th Amendment. Women aren't as valuable as men. Women should expect and accept that high-value men will cheat. From her temporary home in London, the Chicago native is building an online empire that may one day rival Andrew Tate's. She has approximately 1.5 million YouTube subscribers. Her rants arguing against women voting and their declining beauty and fertility in their 30s are adding thousands of Twitter followers daily. She's mastered the art of triggering both conservative and liberal women. Yesterday, I interviewed Pearl on my show, Fearless with Jason Whitlock. It was my first interaction with the six-foot volleyball player turned internet influencer. We chatted for a little more than 30 minutes. I liked her. Later that evening, I participated in a Twitter Spaces conversation for two hours that discussed the importance and authenticity of Pearl's meteoric rise to relevance. Shamika Michelle, Lauren Chen, and Isabella Riley Moody participated in a nuanced conversation with myself, TJ Moe, and men and women across the Twitterverse. The full day of discussing pearly things left me wondering if the well-intentioned influencer is more of an unwitting double agent than force for good. She stumbled into her role as a cheerleader for the Manosphere and outspoken critic of feminism. She studied finance in college. She launched her influencer career on TikTok, posting videos about building a water slide in her family's backyard. She then made sarcastic videos, interpreting raunchy rap music videos as the stereotypical suburban white girl. She had a simple goal. She wanted to earn enough money to move out of her parents' house. She achieved that goal when she leaned into being the female voice of the manosphere. Her innocent girl-next-door charm mixed with her natural conservative values made her unique and irresistible. She's Shirley Temple parroting the talking points of Andrew Tate. I don't say that to dismiss her. I love Pearl. I find her entertaining and authentic, but I have to admit there is some danger to Pearl. My conversation last night on Twitter Spaces helped me see the danger. While mocking the delusion of modern women, Pearl inadvertently condones the delusion of modern men. Make no mistake, the manosphere is delusional. It delights in ridiculing the failures of women without recognizing that their failures are a reflection of men's horrendous leadership. The manosphere argues that the problem with the world is the fallen standards and morality of women. The truth is, it is man's fallen standards and morality that have ruined women and the world. The Manosphere wants women to fall in line and submit to the natural order of male leadership while relieving men of the responsibility of falling in line and submitting to the natural order. The natural order is man follows God and woman follows man. The Manosphere rejects God's order of cleaving to one woman and avoiding adultery. It's one of the reasons we find Pearl irresistible. She repeats the Kevin Samuels mantra that high-value men are going to be promiscuous and that women seeking high-achieving men should learn to accept that fact. The Manosphere believes it's natural for men to cheat and or be promiscuous. Well, it's equally natural for women to usurp authority from men. Should we allow that? We want women to slay their flawed instincts. The key to inspiring them to do that is for men to slay their flawed instincts. 
Pearl, like all of us, has much to learn. She needs a biblical understanding of the value of women. Man cannot reproduce and has little life purpose without women. I don't blame Pearl for her naive and misguided thoughts. I don't blame the Manosphere either. I blame the church for not being as bold and courageous as Pearl and the Manosphere. Okay, so a few things, right? A few things that we have been talking about here on this podcast for some time. One, Pearl Davis. That is the first time I have seen her name. I always am wondering who is this gal when I see short viral videos come across my feed either on YouTube or on Instagram. I've seen her speak to different audiences. In fact, I think I recently played a small clip and I was like, who is this gal? I'll put a link in. You can check her out. I've seen her before. Pearl Davis. Now we have the answer. Pearl Davis is her name. But I've talked about the Manosphere before as well. And here's what I'll say as a husband to one wife since November 25th, 2006, as father to eight children, seven of whom are sons with another son on the way in November, which is great. One daughter, seven sons going on, eight sons. Homeschooling dad, I wrote the book and this is why we homeschool. Even just my doing this podcast is me trying to engage men in particular, especially. I mostly agree with what Jason Whitlock is saying. I mostly agree. I mostly agree with what he's saying. And this has been one of my big critiques of the Manosphere is men going their own way, MGTOW. He's right in his characterization. Jason Whitlock is right to say they spend most of their time complaining about women, like that's going to fix it. Complain about women, like women have been complaining about men, and now we're even. Well, I think that's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth until everybody is blind and toothless. You have to move on at a certain point from critiquing, from criticizing, to what do we do about it? You could say, like in the case of the FBI director, Chris Ray and Republican congressman, it's good to bring out into the open things that have not been handled the way that they should be. But then what, right? Then what? What's the plan, men in the manosphere? What's your plan for doing anything about this or is complaining as far as you've got? Complain and then excuse yourselves for being completely self-absorbed, totally self-indulgent. Is there any fear of God in that at all? Or is this just lovers of self, lovers of pleasure instead of lovers of what is good? So Whitlock is right to characterize the MGTOW guys, the Manosphere guys as being not quite there. Valid in many of their criticisms of feminism and the problem that we have in society in the West due to feminism, but there's more. And the more needs to be what else, right? Or what? What should it be instead? And how do you know? And on what basis? And on whose authority should we do some other thing, some other more beneficial, more blessed, more profitable, some happier thing on whose authority? Whitlock is exactly right as well when he says on God's authority. Pearl Davis needs a biblical prescription here, but the men in particular in the manosphere need a biblical prescription. How would it be if you let Pearl Davis complain for you and you want her to hold your hand as you go into the manosphere, 
complaining about women all the time. It's like Deborah in the book of Judges, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, she can have some great things to say. That's great. Also, what are you doing? (laughs) What are you saying? If you're just hiding behind her saying those things, what is that? You know, I recently had a conversation with my neighbor two houses down, J.P. Chavez, after the announcement of this forum, our first forum, where we're going to be trying to, together as a church, as Christians in the Greeley-Evans area, develop our political theology so as to honor God best as we relate to the welfare of the city. Jeremiah 29.7 tells us very clearly that there is a precedent for Christians, I would say, insofar as Christians are compared to exiles in the New Testament, but we have the original, the OG exiles in Jeremiah being told by God, build houses, take wives, have sons and daughters, plant vineyards, plant gardens, pray for the peace of the city, seek the welfare of the city to which Yahweh your God has brought you in your exile, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. We have a precedent as Christians to seek the welfare of our city, wherever that city may be. In this case, it happens to be Greeley slash Evans. But I was asked by JP, says, well, do you have any plans for childcare or babysitting during the event by chance? And this is going to be August 13th, by the way, the evening of August 13th at the church on the topic of education. And I said, you know, (laughs) no, for one thing, but for another thing, I actually am still trying to figure out how to say we want the men here. And it's not to be unkind towards the women, but the men need to be leading. Just like the men need to be leading in their homes, the men need to be leading in political engagement. Why? Because it's dangerous. Why? Because boldness is needed. And men are, by God's design, more configured for boldness. And we need to call men to boldness. We need to encourage that. We need to grow that. We need to nurture that. We need to model that. We need to exemplify that. It is just a fact that when women are the ones who are always stepping to the fore, the men hang back. Why? Because in some sense, the lie that has been told to all of us, including those of us in the church for all our lives at this point, at this point in history and in the history of feminism specifically, many of us have been told the gentlemanly thing to do is to not contradict that woman. Just like you wouldn't hit a girl, you're not going to get into a debate with a woman where you're trading critiques back and forth like you would with a man. It's a matter of chivalry. It's a matter of politeness. And then that's before you even get into, what if this woman and her husband have both come to this gathering and the woman is very aggressively and even possibly rudely, because women can be rude, rudely implying and insinuating things or trying to assert dominance over the whole affair. And you, as a man who is not her husband, start going back and forth about it. What is her husband now forced into but a lose-lose situation where he either tells his wife, hey, you know what? Please sit down. That's enough. Which he should have probably, if she's going to misbehave, he should have told her that before they even got there or told her, you know what, maybe you should just stay home. But the flip side is if he feels like his wife is being attacked and he, as a man, is supposed to protect his wife, 
regardless of whether she just caused a whole lot of ruckus, now he's going to come to her defense and now he loses either way. If he doesn't come to her defense or if he tells her, that's enough, please sit down, sweetie, that's enough, he loses because he's on the wrong side of history. He's not being suitably egalitarian, right? But if he sticks up for her and she's wrong and she's badly mistaken, well, he's just enabled her. And no man wants to put that guy, that husband in that situation. No other man present wants to. It's uncomfortable for everybody and it has a tendency to derail the entire operation. But what do you do, right? Where does one start? (laughs) Do you make that part of the announcement? This is men only, right? Only the men. We only want the men attending or if the women attend, they should just be observers. We need the men engaged on this and the men are all going to be quiet. We're going to get a role reversal, just like we're getting throughout society. The men are going to be quiet while the women run with the ball and they want to talk about being mothers and they want to talk about their perspective. And you know what? Fine that they have a perspective. Fine that they are mothers. That's great. Let's honor them in that. That doesn't mean that they have to come in and take over the conversation. That doesn't mean that they should be coming in and commandeering a meeting that would be for the men. But if you say that, then you will get people who will not show up and they won't debate it either. They will just say, oh, you sexist. How could you, right? You misogynist. You are exactly who the likes of Paul David Tripp warned us about. And in that case, what you get is just a perpetuity of de facto matriarchy. That's what you get. And so on the one hand, (laughs) I would agree with Whitlock that this is an equal opportunity for men and women, but then it's actually men who are setting the tone. But where does one start? Uh, Also too, I just want to key in briefly on the distinction between flawed instincts and sin. Now, if you want to say sometimes our desires, our ambitions, our impulses, the broader society around us, all of the above, the world, the flesh, and the devil, lead us astray. If you want to say that, great, but let's make sure we are putting in the proper category sin, and we are defining sin as what God has said, don't do, or when God has told us to do something and we don't do it. We neglect to do the good that we ought to do, or we do the evil that we're told not to do. Sin is sin. What makes me nervous about flawed instincts type language is it's too therapeutic, it's too flattering, it's too affirming, it's too psychological. And as we have already discussed in this episode, psychology is used left, right, and center in the U.S., and it has been in other countries where the left has tried to assert dominance. Psychology can absolutely be used if it's not checked against biblical truth. If biblical truth is not the final authority, the first authority and the last authority, psychology can be hijacked also as a manipulative tool to malign and to silence ultimately anybody who would say something different anybody who would question or challenge or disagree or say, hey, let's go back to what God told us to do. And actually, again, to agree with Whitlock here, 
What's needed is to have the biblical mindset, but then that's dangerous, right? That's the scary thing that the manosphere doesn't necessarily want to get into. Pearl Davis doesn't necessarily want to get into because as soon as you get biblical, then it's something like a package deal. (laughs) You kind of have to say it's all true, what we read in the Bible, and are we ready for that? Are we okay with taking that stand and making that statement? And yeah, you know what? Let's work out what we mean by it, what the implications are. To give you an example of how dangerous that can be, I know somebody who was in the last year or so church disciplined out of a church in Montana. He was an older man who was well-respected in his family and in the church for all I know, for all I've ever heard, well-respected reads his Bible every year for years and years and years, for decades, knows it very, very well. But he was church disciplined out because he dared to contradict the elders of that church during an adult men's Sunday school. And why was that so dangerous? Because one of the elders, as I understand it, had made the claim that the kings and the patriarchs in the Old Testament were sinning when they had multiple wives. Every instance of polygamy in the Old Testament was sin. And this is where the Manosphere and the Pearl Davis types actually could be very helpful if they correct a longstanding error that has been passed down. It's like in programming, when you use a program, the previous program for a site or a facility as your template, and you have errors in that earlier program, and then you Duplicate, 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 duplicate. What are you duplicating if you don't fix the error before you start copy-pasting? If you don't fix the errors in your template, then you just duplicate those errors. And then some jolly soul will say, ah, but this has been the way that it's been for a long, long time. How could all these people have gotten it wrong? And it's like, I see this every day. (laughs) I see this all the time in my line of work. You know, the the so-called smart people, you know, including me, I'm told, overlook something or somebody wants it yanked out of there because this is an either-or headbutting vanity thing and they want to assert dominance. And now that's the template. Now that's the standard, even if it's wrong. And and also, too, here's another thing that comes up when it comes to automation. You say, ah, but we should fix it. And then somebody will say, yeah, but that would be a lot of work. If you fix it one place, you're going to have to fix it everywhere. And I don't know if it's worth it. I think we let's just let it be. It hasn't caused any problems that we're worried about to this point. But then what if it has, right? What if it has actually caused problems, contributed to problems, and you just haven't appreciated that yet? Just like you didn't realize that there was the mistake in there in the first place until it was brought to your attention. Maybe you also haven't correctly diagnosed some of the effects of that mistake. You don't think it's had any effects, just like you didn't think that this was even a thing until just now. So going back to this older man who was church disciplined out, his son-in-law was one of the elders who confronted him, pulled him aside after this Sunday school session. They changed the church website to say, we absolutely believe that marriage biblically is one man and one woman for life, period. Anything else is sin. Everything else is sin. And the problem with that is you can't quote for me book, chapter, and verse in the Bible that says what you're saying which is to say you are now assuming something like a papal ex-cathedra 
type authority where you get to declare what is sin. And that's dangerous because that's exactly the road that the Pharisees went down. And by the time of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, they wanted to play gotcha with Jesus and the disciples publicly about their extensions of the law, their amendments to the law of Moses or the law of God, more to the point. Jesus didn't play that. We shouldn't either. Jesus didn't affirm that. In fact, what did he do? He said, you've heard that it was said that I say to you. You've heard that it was said a man can divorce his wife if he gives her a certificate of divorce. And there was debate about, well, okay, what are conditions that have to be met or could be met? Can he divorce her for just any old reason whatsoever if he's just unhappy with her? Some said yes. Some rabbis created traditions that said yes. And others said no. And so there was debate. And Jesus says, if a man divorces his wife, except in the case of adultery, he's caused her to commit adultery. If she marries again, she has committed adultery so long as her first husband is alive. Now, if her first husband passes away, she's free to remarry. That's fine. But if her first husband is still alive, she should be reconciled instead of getting remarried. And why this is significant is because these elders at this church in Montana were maintaining that polygamy must be a sin because adultery is a sin. And therefore, because Jesus said, if a man looks at a woman with lust, or that is to say, desire, which is also, there's just, there are mistakes left and right in this scenario here. But if a man looks at a woman with desire, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so then you say, okay, well, what is adultery biblically? Is it adultery if an unmarried man looks at an unmarried woman with desire? Clearly, no. And this got Dennis Prager into some hot water here recently. And I actually still maintain that Dennis Prager was more correct than most of his critics who do not know the word of God as well as they ought to. But now they're committed. <laughs> now they have invested themselves and by golly, it's going to be hard to walk that back if they were wrong about a few things. Just like it was very difficult and it was too difficult, apparently, for these elders in Montana. So what did they do? They church disciplined this older man in the church out, removed him from fellowship, not because he told them they were wrong about the biblical definition of adultery, which they were. They were saying adultery is when a married man or a married woman has relations with anybody other than their spouse. That's not the biblical definition of adultery. The biblical definition of adultery has to do with a married woman, whether the man in question is married or unmarried, because she is married. That's what makes it adultery. She's an adulteress. The man in question is an adulterer if he's taking somebody else's wife. But nowhere, not one instance can be cited. Not one single solitary example can be cited in all of scripture. And if I'm wrong, correct me, prove me wrong, change my mind. Wherein a man who's already married sees another woman, desires to take her as a wife as well, and is said to have committed adultery, not in a single one. If you want to claim that that's what every one of those instances were, you're eisegeting. And you're eisegeting to flatter the status quo. You're eisegeting to affirm egalitarianism at root, which is not biblical. 
And so on the one hand, we could say, many of us who are conservative Christians in America, for instance, we could say, oh yeah, get her, Whitlock, get her, get Pearl Davis, get the Manosphere. I mean, we like them, but get them because we are more righteous than they are. Thank God that I'm not like these men going their own way over there. Thank God that I'm not like Pearl Davis. <laughs> in actual fact, we need to clean up our understanding in many, many cases, because what happened, I would say, during the whole marriage equality debates is some of the arguments, and this happened with the slavery question as well. Abolitionists got into the same trouble. Check out The Civil War as a Theological Crisis by Mark A. Knoll for more on that. We got into, many of us, a problem and a, and a trouble because the so-called marriage equality folks were saying, who are you? Who are you to tell two men who say they love each other that they can't get married? Who are you to say two women who say they love each other they can't get married? Who are you, right? In fact, maybe they love each other better than the man and woman in your church who've been married for decades, but you give them a pass. You don't ever say anything critical or disagree so long as they're a man and a woman. And what was the argument? What was the claim, the very succinct but possibly overhasty and overly reductionistic claim, what was the flag that was planted by many conservative Christians as they opposed marriage equality? They said, we believe marriage is between one man and one woman. And what does that portend when the so-called marriage equality folks are like, well, what about all of the polygamists and patriarchs? Ooh, wow, we didn't think this through, apparently. And yet, in some quarters, now... It's just selfish ambition and vain conceit. If the elders have said, this is the position we're taking, they're not open to reason. They're not open to being corrected. They're not open to being taught themselves because maybe they went to the best seminary. Maybe they went to the best school. Maybe they have high-profile pastor friends who are regarded as the most sober, the most godly, the most faithful of men in the whole world perhaps even since the apostolic age. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they know the word of God as well as they ought to, as well as an older man in the church who's been reading it every year for decades and now has something to point out to them, has some questions for them that they don't have good answers to. So these elders, they had to admit, you're right, right? You, you are actually right. We were wrong about a biblical definition of adultery. And when pressed for a single solitary example wherein God called sin what they're saying is a sin or where God either rebuked or called to repentance or punished any of those polygamists in the Old Testament, these elders couldn't provide a single solitary example, not one. And you could say, well, but we just think it's unwise. And it's like, okay, well then say that, right? Say you think it's unwise, but you don't get to make the leap from everything you think is unwise to this person is living in sin and is unrepentant if they won't let me tell them to stop it. This person is sinning if they disagree with me because I think it's unwise to disagree with me. No, that's not how that works. You have a rather too high view of yourself. You have a rather too high view of yourself or you have a rather too high value placed on earning and maintaining the respect of others in your peer group. And you should, you should be faithful to the biblical text first. And the people who are going to respect you for that 
great. And the people who are going to hate you because you contradicted them and they thought too highly of themselves and they were rather puffed up, just like the Pharisees, you know what? If they think less of you because you stood on the authority of God's word and the sufficiency of scripture to tell us what the mind of God is as pertains to righteousness and wickedness, if you earned the animosity and the hate and the reproach wrongful of certain very status quo figures in the church, well, I I think that's just the risk we're going to have to take if we're ever going to actually do anything about cleansing ourselves from the unrighteousness that is feminism. And if we're not willing to do that, well, then we should probably just keep it down in criticizing the Manosphere folks, because what are we doing that's so much better than them? What are we doing except complaining as well, but not actually moving on to solutions? So for instance, try this on for size. If the Manosphere folks are saying scientifically men are predisposed to wanting variety and high-achieving men have a tendency, and this is a trope, it's just a truism, high-achieving men have a tendency to want variety and multiplicity. If we only have one category, but it's arbitrary or it's historical or it's traditional, but it's not biblical, then one, we introduce all sorts of problems for how we read and interpret the biblical texts written by, in some cases, men who had multiple wives. Now we have some major problems when we come to reading the wisdom literature of the Old Testament. Now we have some major problems when it comes to reading the Psalms of David. And oh, by the way, God proved in the case of David, he was fully capable of calling the man after his own heart to repentance when David took Uriah's wife, because that was the distinction. The distinction wasn't that he took an additional wife for himself. In fact, the rebuke and the confrontation from Nathan the prophet makes that very clear. David was fine, as far as God was concerned, to have as big a flock, so to speak, if you will, if you catch the metaphor, as big of a flock as he wanted, he wasn't in the clear at all to go and steal his neighbor's only beloved lamb and then to put him on the front line where the fighting was the fiercest and have everybody else pull back so he would be cut down. David was sinning greatly and God sent the prophet Nathan to let him know it. If we understood that there are some other biblical categories that are appropriate putting aside cultural concerns, putting aside the traditions of men, putting aside what is strictly speaking legal, because we've already seen in recent years that can change and it can change dramatically and it's still changing just along very progressive lines, almost always. Putting aside all of the opinions of man, the judgments of men for a moment, we have a biblical category for a high achieving male taking multiple wives and that not being sexual sin, sexual immorality. And actually, as a matter of fact, even in the case of men who would say, I'm only going to be married to this one woman. And by the way, that is the litmus test for a man to be an overseer or a deacon in the church. So we get something of an idea. The folks who are for one man, one woman for life, they're not making it all up, but they're not being careful. They're going beyond the text. They're adding to and subtracting both, which we are warned in the strongest possible terms against doing. But men who would be pastors or who would be deacons, they have to be the husband of one wife. They can't be polygamists. Everybody else, 
If you can support multiple wives, there's a biblical category for that being okay with God. And now if it's not okay with other people, well then we need to understand that's not how we determine what is sin. And if we don't understand that, then boy, howdy, it makes a whole lot more sense how we got into this trouble with the woke folk and with liberal Christianity, so-called, which is a false gospel. It makes so much more sense how the prosperity theology folks have been able to ply their trade, how the charismaniacs, who are fraudsters, have been able to ply their trade. It makes so much more sense how so many abusive church situations have been allowed to take root across the U.S., and they bubble up every every now and then, every so often. Why? Because sin is defined as anytime you disagree with or contradict the pastors. But you know what? That's exactly how you get more sin, not less sin. Because just like the congregation has a sinful nature to contend with, so too does the pastor or a board of elders, for that matter, have a sinful nature to contend with. Now, what is this not? What I'm saying when I talk about biblical categories for a man who would be a high achiever and who would want to have multiple wives, what I'm not saying is that then is a blank check for men to do whatever they want as long as it's not with somebody else's wife. And how do I know that? Because of what is written. So I'm not going to do what my opponents in this case, in this arena, do And just say, because my opinion, because then we're right back into the marriage equality debates where it's like, who are you to say, right? And it's like, that's not the point. The point is, who is God to say? And are we actually listening to God's judgment, God's declarations? But get this, right? Hear me. Just because something's not adultery, which by the way, is a capital offense, just like homosexuality in the law of God, just like bestiality, just because something is not any of those things and is not a capital offense, that doesn't mean that it is sexually moral. So actually, contrary to what you have probably heard, polygamy is not a sin. It's not. Now, it could be made illegal, just like many things could be made illegal. But we don't say, if all of a sudden tomorrow AR-15s are outlawed, we don't say that it is a sin categorically for anyone ever to own an AR-15. If the laws are repealed, that say you can't own an AR-15, we don't say, oh, now it's not a sin. Now it's a sin. Now it's not a sin. Now it's a sin. Now it's not a sin. No, that's not how it works. God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. His immutability, his unchanging character mean that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's not changing his mind. He didn't change his mind. He hasn't become somebody different. And no, I don't particularly buy the claim that is so easily, so easily adopted by the egalitarians when it comes to the ordination of women or the normalizing of homosexuality that, oh, for that cultural context, right? It was okay back then, but it's not anymore because we've progressed. Once you start redefining sexual ethics, you start with the Bible, but then you come back to the present and you're like, okay, we're going to abide by these things not these things. We're going to be more severe on these things. You lose the standing to be able to tell the person who's like, well, we're going to relax on these things, even though God says expressly not to do these things or not to allow anybody to do these things. Your standing to be able to tell them no does go out the window. And then it does actually 
very easily get sucked into the, who are you to say? As though this is your private judgment, as though this is your opinion. That's the thing that's been so often missed in the debates about marriage and sexual ethics in our day and gender identity for that matter. I don't hear often enough the rebuttal of, it's not my opinion. This is God's judgment. I don't get, you're right. I don't get to declare what is and isn't a sin. I don't get to declare it. So don't take it up with me. If I'm saying repent, don't take it up with me like this is malice on my part or phobia for crying out loud. It's not me. I'm not the standard. My personal judgments are not the standard. Yes, I might be able to make some value judgments of my own and make decisions based on those, based on what I believe to be beneficial, not just lawful, but beneficial. Absolutely, 100%. But that's different, right? That's qualitatively different than me saying, I'm going to declare what is sin beyond what God has said. Because if I say I'm declaring what is sin beyond what God has said is sin, then where am I going to stop? What am I going to say is a sin next? For that matter, too, if you say, well, we can take biblical principles and we can deduce from those biblical principles that therefore we can declare certain things sin. I say, well, wait a second. What happens when somebody who is a vegetarian wants you to eat lab-grown meat because originally God's intention was no death? And God only gave permission to eat the animals after the flood. You say, well, God's ideal is such and such, and therefore nobody should be allowed to eat meat. And anybody who does eat meat is sinning. Mm, That's the equivalent. Or to give another example, somebody says, I believe we should ban all fossil fuels. Why? Because there's a principle pertaining to the roof of somebody's house needing to have a guardrail. And if somebody's on the roof of somebody else's house and they fall and they die, it's actually the man who owned that house that didn't put a sufficient guardrail up on the roof who's at fault. He's culpable. And therefore, we should ban the mining, transport, refining, and use of fossil fuels because it's like a rooftop without a sufficient guardrail. And I say, no, you can't declare using fossil fuels to be a sin like that. It doesn't work like that. You're twisting scripture when you do that. Now, maybe if you personally, privately cannot in good conscience drive an internal combustion engine vehicle, don't. Don't. Just like if you can't in good conscience eat meat offered to idols, don't. Just like if you can't eat meat at all in good conscience, don't. Maybe there's something wrong with the rest of us. If our conscience is okay with that, maybe there's something wrong with your conscience if your conscience won't permit that. Maybe you just haven't studied diligently enough to be able to rightly handle the word of truth. Those are some things to think about. Moving on a little bit, but staying close to this topic of the manosphere and men and women and the gender wars, Holly Ash over at Not The Bee posted up a story. July 10th, can you tell which of these two has XY chromosomes? Guess who was just crowned Miss Universe Netherlands? And you probably have heard about this, but in case you haven't, the story is that a transgendered model, a man who dresses up like a woman, who has long hair like a woman, who wears makeup and jewelry like a woman, who wears women's clothing who acts in a very effeminate way, a transgendered man won Miss Universe Netherlands. 
And there's so much that could be said about this, but suffice for the time being to point out that this is what comes of being arbitrary and presuming to declare what is and is not sin from our own reasoning instead of going by the clear word of God in the Bible. This is what comes of it. The Netherlands, of all places, the Dutch used to be very reformed. Look at them now. So open-minded that their brains have fallen out. And now a man is their so-called Miss Universe. What's that? That is radical egalitarianism taken to its logical conclusion. And what's your argument against it? Is your argument against it, we have biblical principles, or do you go book, chapter, verse? It is written. And then actually quote what is written instead of just your opinion on what is written. It makes a big difference. As a matter of fact, I think this is the other side of the coin in many cases to the manosphere. You have the manosphere with a whole lot of men who maybe are incels or they are so-called high-achieving males and they want a community that is going to not bash on them for being men, even as they bash on women in too many cases for being women. The other side of the coin is when men fully give themselves over to the matriarchy, what is the way for them to be the highest achieving self? It's to be a woman and to win against all of the women in sports or in, in this case, a beauty pageant. And I grant, I grant that it's not either or, as though those are the only two options. I get that. But it's either these kinds of options or the authority of God's word. That would be my position. If we don't stand for this is what God has said and what he hasn't said, we say is where we have liberty, use your best judgment. If we don't stand on that, then we fall for nonsense like this, as so many are. Lastly, I'll play you one more clip. And this one, I have to warn you, there's language. Ian Miles Chong tweeted this out. Normal people aren't woke. July 11th, picked up by Cardinal Pritchard over at Not The Bee. Can a man get pregnant? Harlem versus Columbia University. Take a listen. Cut six. Do you guys think men can get pregnant? Yes. It's yes. Yeah, it's yes. Can men get pregnant? Hell no. Not what's who call them? Seahorses. We not that. We are asking people if men can get pregnant at Columbia University, and then we're going to go to Harlem and ask the same question. Do you guys think men can get pregnant? If you identify as a man and you have the reproductive parts to get pregnant, then yeah, you can get pregnant. Like, it's a yes. Obviously, it's a yes. There's no other, no question. Someone that identifies as a man can have a uterus and, and potentially get pregnant. If, like, the man has the same body structure, like women's. Like women's? With the, like, here, maybe he can have pregnancies. Yeah. You're transgender, I, I believe, like, you can do the whole procedure. So you define your way into pregnancy, right? You can now, yeah. Can men get pregnant? I want no part of this. Well, yes. yes. Do you want any part of it? So that was Columbia, and this is Harlem, and we're going to ask the same question. Can men get pregnant? What do you guys think? Can men get pregnant? Oh, no. Men cannot get pregnant. Yes, because they don't got a uterus. Hello. They don't have a uterus. A lot of people have been telling us they can. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's outrageous, bro. For men, we're here to, like, you know, 
put the seed inside the female. Yeah. Nah, what's you call them? Seahorses. We not that. Yeah, we ain't no fucking seahorses. We to get them pregnant. Men, uh, men is not to have baby. God created woman and man to make baby. That's man. A lot of people have been telling us that men can get pregnant. Have you been hearing this at all? No, I have. I have not. <laughs> you don't have a clue what they're talking about. No. Do you have any idea what they're talking about? No, not really. They're telling me that if a man has those parts, then they can get pregnant. That's what. That's what they were saying. Really? Does that make any sense to you? No, not really. No, they don't have a uterus, but you really can't. It's, it, it don't make no sense to me. Only women do. So what's your opinion on that, that they think men can get pregnant? Uh, it sounds kind of dumb to me. I'll tell you what, what we've been hearing. So they say that if a man has a uterus, has a woman's parts, then they can get pregnant. That's what they're telling me. Okay, okay, I guess that makes sense, but... They would be a woman. <laughs> God is the creator of this world as far as I know. He made a woman and he made a man. And he made us for a purpose. Man is never going to have a baby. So people that's thinking like that are crazy. And you better know they're crazy. I'm finished with that. <laughs> uh, uh, I love the I, I love the older black woman. He's like, that's crazy. People who think that are crazy. And you need to know that they're crazy. <laughs> Yes, 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 yes. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Apparently, the Soviet uh, abuse of psychiatry has not reached Harlem, thankfully. May it never, may it never be so that <laughs> you guys are uh, subjected to claims of mental illness because you believe that men are men and women are women, and that's what it is. <sighs> Nevertheless, Columbia University represents increasingly the status quo. And so here again, I point out another kind of argument that we have to be steering clear of. If we make our argument from tradition and from this is the status quo, this is what the laws are, this is what man has agreed, this is tradition. If we make our arguments from this is what it is that the consensus has come to and we don't want to offend, right? We don't want to offend the community. What have we just lost? We've just lost the grounds for being able to object when the most prestigious universities in the world, in the West, Europe, the US, have decided to rationalize that you can call a woman a man and then say that she's able to get pregnant. Or you could do some really weird Dr. Mengele type experiments to put a uterus into a man because he identifies himself as a woman so he can get pregnant and see if it works. We have to be able to say definitively, not just that Columbia University is wrong, but why. And the why has to be consistent and it has to be objective and it has to be grounded on God's word or else we don't have a leg to stand on because they have the money, they have the power, they have the talking stick with the corporate media and with big tech and they use it. They use fuzzy terms like disinformation. They use accusations of phobia, which is irrational fears, not just fear, but irrational fears to silence anybody who criticizes or disagrees or cross-examines. They use categories to imply that you are on the losing side and you might not even be a sane person. You might not even be a rational person that we would even have to 
engage with you in discussion. If we buy into the wrong kind of an argument, we don't have a leg to stand on to say, no, repent. For that matter too, can I just point out briefly, again, again, the manosphere needs Jesus, very much so, but if we will preach Jesus to the manosphere, we have to have serious arguments, biblical arguments that are comprehensive and that don't leave us embarrassed or stubbornly maintaining that, well, you're just not a Christian you wouldn't understand. I personally don't ever want to be in a circumstance where I'm talking with a Muslim man who says, well, what about this scripture and what about this passage and show me where it says this and show me this. And I have to admit, oh, you know what? I put my foot in my mouth and I don't really know, but please, please come back, please come back and hear about my Lord and Savior and the gospel. I don't ever want to be in that situation and I don't want anybody else to be either who is a Christian. I want us to have good arguments, sound arguments, reasoned arguments that start from the authority of God's word instead of starting from the lofty opinions of men. First and foremost being their lofty opinions of themselves. We have to be humble enough before the Lord that he would give us grace and he would give us wisdom when we ask for it, not double-minded, doing nothing from selfish ambition and vain conceit, because there are real men, women, and children who are devastated every day by the lies straight from the pit of hell designed to destroy those made in God's image. And by all means, let's call the manosphere to repentance if they are saying there is no such thing as sexual immorality. There is no such thing as sexual ethics according to God. Let's call them to repentance, but let's know how to teach them righteousness and obedience to Christ and faith in Christ. Let's know how to do so by having the proper categories and not going beyond what God has said. If we want to state our own public opinion, it needs to be our own public opinion and present it as such. And then when it's not our opinion, I mean, it's such a blessed relief and it really does simplify the process for me to be able to just say, for you to be able to just say, hey, it's not my opinion. It's not my judgment. This is God who said it. And he would know. He knows better than I do how he made us, why he made us, what we're supposed to be about. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I have to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.